you know, I, I, I just think like if you care about, you know, if you're a farm to table chef or a movement of something like that, then that especially in Alaska, your job does become political because I'm indigenous and I focused on some of that. And then the more you learn, the more you just can't turn away from mm -hmm. your job becomes political and a little more mission driven. Um, you know, if this was opportunity for me when I was like 25, there's no way I would do this because I just didn't have the attention span to not do something physical in a kitchen. Like I, I'm, I'm a very tactile individual, so I do need, I needed some time to definitely grow those experiences. Um, this job is, I feel like it's a one of one. I mean, the conversations and, you know, it was kind of tailored for me. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, and that's exciting, but I also think I bring a, a unique aspect to the table. I'm not trying to say, I guess I just put it even like right now, if you Google chef, like I wouldn't be the top five millionth response, but if you Google indigenous chef, I'm probably like one of 10. That was chef Rob Kinnean. He's been an ambassador for Alaskan cuisine through his guest chef appearances, speaking engagements, cooking demonstrations, and private caterings. His work has revolutionized how people see and understand the state's traditional foods. His understanding of traditional foods goes back to growing up in Petersburg, Alaska, where he remembers clamming with his uncles, fishing with his dad, and picking berries. There was also venison and the first time he had fresh asparagus. It was so much better than the stuff that came out of a can. He works for the food nonprofit Natives Now, where he promotes food relief, education, awareness, and accessibility of traditional foods. He says that his position is a one of one. There's nothing else out there like it. It's not so much a job as it is what he does, and who he is as a chef and as a person of Clinkett heritage. In his late 40s now, Rob says that he started to really notice the negative effects that alcohol was having on his body and his lifestyle. So over two years ago, he became alcohol-free. He says that right now, he's proud of being exactly who he wants to be. He has more hours in the day, and his mind is clear, and he's confident. So here he is, Rob Kinnean. Welcome to Chattermarks. A podcast of the Anchorage Museum. Dedicated to exploring Alaska and the Circumpolar North. Through the creative and critical thinking of ideas. Past, present, and, and future. future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. You just got back from a trip to the mountains of Western North Carolina with your wife, right? That's true. What do you usually do out there? Uh, well, normally it is 100% um, recreational. Uh, and actually we were there more as a family unit. Um, but my wife is the executive director of the Western North Carolina cheese trail. Mm -hmm. Um, so she's coordinating a cheese festival in late September. And so we were out there just kind of doing a little R and D. Um, but in that R and D, it also gets you a chance to just be in Western North Carolina in the mountains in the summertime. So it's a little less, it's a lot less humid. It's usually, you know, five degrees lower than it would be like in Durham, for example. And it's just a beautiful place to be. So we're just kind of recharging the batteries for a minute. To prepare for this conversation, I 
looked up pictures of it and it it looks beautiful it's a really neat um you know the, like we were in black mountain which uh i had never been before um and coincidentally there was a sourwood festival uh honey festival going on so it was a lot more busy downtown a lot busier than it would have been downtown um but it just has that little small time small town like vibe small town charm yeah and um yeah and it's just it's it's really it's again like you know we used to go to we used to go to Asheville like back in the day um but now there's it's it's a it's a really vibrant and we did go to Asheville for a hot minute um but then like Hendersonville like so there's also like you can be anywhere in like 10 or 15 minutes you know and so we've gone we used to go up there for my birthday during before the pandemic my birthday is in June so, you know, we'd go like hit the waterfalls and then like uh, horseback riding. Um, there's a place to kayak, like in everything, you know, and then there's just like Lookout Mountain and a few other places you can go and see um, this very obscure, um, uh, uh, just kind of a weird um, X-Files town called <laughs> Bat Cave. <laughs> and yeah. what it is, is basically it used to be the highway before the interstates came around. So it apparently used to be a very busy place, but now it's just sort of like a sideshow attraction. Like the town kind of time kind of forgot it. Um, so it's really neat. I mean, it's just kind of, it's exciting. It's just, it, it, it's, it's, it's really great to be out there and just kind of, you know, you have an agenda, but it's not too pressing. And if you get to it um, or if you don't, you know, you can get to it next time. So it's, it's a nice place to be. That is great. The, the X-Files reference, you know, you, you definitely, um, got me on that one because I'm a big X-Files fan. And whenever I drive through kind of a, a small quaint town, um, that's maybe a, a little bit off the beaten path. I always make, you know, some reference to like pop culture or movies or a television show just so my brain can, you know, I can wrap my brain around it. Yeah. This, this, it's very interesting because it's this, um, there's this one house in particular. And I remember like my wife and daughter, uh, well, and I, we listen to a lot of podcasts. They tend to listen to things that are more like, um, just supernatural. So, you know, that's mm -hmm. kind of the common thing is like, that place is definitely haunted. <laughs> there's definitely some, <laughs> some juju going on in this joint. Um, but yeah, we like where we were, I remember it was just this really, quirky like just gothic american house that was just way too big i mean you wouldn't have a family living it was just too it was huge it had a market on the side that was selling like nothing really of value um and it's just the kind of place like a sasquatch could walk right through here and like, <laughs> wow, it totally would make sense i mean you know alien abduction i don't know it just it was kind of, it's just a very quirky place but i'm not saying you shouldn't go and i hope people from bat cave uh, north carolina aren't hating on me but it's uh it's a, it's definitely a unique attraction. Do you find it helpful to you know spend time in nature, spend time away from, you know, the places maybe where you work but also where work is also accessible. You know, you're you're close to the airport, you're close to the highways. Yeah. Well, um so we didn't really talk about this, I guess, but uh, I am the outreach director for Natives, North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems. Mm -hmm. And that is based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, so the 
silver lining of the pandemic culture is that Zoom and, um, you know, is is not uncommon now. It's a little more accepted to communicate with people. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, I can I, I do get a chance to travel. I spend a fair amount of time in Minnesota, in Minneapolis. Um, and then I obviously live in Durham, North Carolina. Um, I love the fact that like in Durham, I mean, even in our neighborhood, we walk two times a day or, you know, we have a dog. So we try to get her out in the morning and the night and, you know, at evening time, I mean, you know, you're watching bats and rabbits and deer and I've seen coyotes, um, you know, and this is in Durham. So it's kind of, kind of crazy in a way, but it's also, it just brings to life where you're at in the ecosystem. Yeah. Um, there's also like for me, uh, a place called the Eno river. And it's a protected watershed um, that is just magic. Um, you can go through there and there's old mill ruins from, you know, people that used to have mills right on the river, um, homesteads. But then there's also just, you know, mile, two mile trails. We can just get out. And that's what I really love about Durham. Um, and I, I did reconnect with that, like in Anchorage, for example. Like we, you know, you're you're in a car and in 10 minutes you can be on top of a mountain in the Chugiak mountain range, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and that's that's great, but I think like in Durham, it's it's a little sweeter of a position because things aren't so far away. And then even if you're in town, there's like the botanical gardens and some parks and things that we go to uh, where you can just kind of get out into it real quick. And I do find a lot of value in that. Um, Minneapolis too is a pretty. I, I really don't know very much about the Midwest. I've never. I'm not from here. I didn't go to school here. I don't have family or friends here. Um, but Minneapolis is a beautiful city. I live, I live, I stay in a place that's kind of close to the, uh, it's called Lake of the Isles or Isle of the Lakes. <laughs> I guess I should find that out before I talk about it. <laughs> walkable, you know, you're down there and there's people out there kayaking and there's like sunfish, like sailboats and, you know, people are in the water and it's just, it's just beautiful and vibrant, you know, and it's, you can just kind of get again, like get out into it. And just decompress a minute, you know. Um, yeah. And I, I find that very valuable. I'm I'm a little bit of a short attention span type of guy, so I, I need that connection to kind of refocus. You mentioned your your job at the nonprofit Natives. Can you tell me about the work you do there? Absolutely. Um, it, it for me, um, you know, as outreach director, uh, most of my experience uh, since I've been. 14 was working in kitchens in service in the service industry. Um, I have done video work and uh, work that would be more probably on a government nonprofit level. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have had kind of peripheral um, work experience or interactions in this environment, but this is the first nonprofit job I have ever taken. Mm-hmm. And I do find it welcoming in the sense that I kind of consider myself an eternal student. I mean, the one thing I love about the service industry is, you know, in my 20s, I just want to be a really, you know, like badass line cook. And then mm-hmm. getting up into my late 20s, and I kind of got into management. And then, um, you know, I got into baking a little bit. And then, uh, you know, working in the kitchen as a manager. And then kind of focusing on like whole animal butchery or making pasta from scratch. And so there's always something to learn. There's always another facet to embrace. Um, And so, you know, getting up into my, I hate to say late forties, but, you know, kind of being up on top of the hill, if not going a little over the other side, like focusing on a skill set where I'm using the 
you know, 27 years as a chef and as all this experience, um, I'm using it in a, in a positive fashion and it's a part of my arsenal, but it's also like focusing on something maybe that's a little more administrative or more policy-based. Um, so that's kind of the excitement behind that and uh, the longest response ever. Um, but in regards <laughs> to actually what I do um, as the outreach director for North American Traditional Indigenous Food Systems, 50% of my job is probably um, concentrating on under under natives is the indigenous food lab concept. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, food relief, education, awareness, and accessibility of traditional foods. Um, so the, the flagship is opening up in Minneapolis. Uh, it was born in a pandemic where they did do food relief. And then it kind of focused on um, the next stage of the mission. And we're actually just getting done with our marketplace. Uh, when that's done in hopefully October, it will be one part media center training, uh, one part uh, spirit kitchen to encourage uh, indigenous entrepreneurialism. So coming up, maybe you have an idea for a food truck or a catering place or a value added meal that you just want to try and, you know, literally even sell to your, to people, to co- potential customers, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but a place where you can, you know, dial in food cost or look at expectations of things. And then there will be a full-fledged market, uh, a little bit of a quick service concept, and then actually even a, a tea lab uh, working with indigenous uh, teas. So it's a it's a really neat concept. Um, you know, this is not a franchise. We're not trying to do the indigenous food lab, like AKA like Chipotle model. Um, we're taking the essence of indigenous food culture and indigenous food traditions and indigenous food standards. And we're, and we're um, expanding them. So we're calling them extensions right now. We're focusing on Alaska and Montana. We've had a lot of other inquiries, but I think that what we're going to do is focus on those for two different reasons and then build up a list of criteria. So potential partners will have a list of standards that we're looking for to build that relationship with. Um, the other side of my job is literally just outreach. So like I spent uh, seven days in Menominee, Wisconsin, um, about three weeks ago, we did two interactive uh, cooking classes mm-hmm. where one day we did a garden walk. One day we did a foraging walk. Um, we made two soups. Participants got to cut vegetables, talk about their recipes. At the end, they got, you know, a, a chef knife, a, uh, a paring knife, a cutting board and a book. Um, so it was a full interactive immersive experience. And then we did, um, a day of production and we did a feast for the community as well. It was like 200 people. Um, and then the food went to elders programs and things like that. There was anything that was left over. So that's another part of my job, just like literally community outreach. And that's the exciting and really intimidating part because I'm going to areas that I'm not super well versed in, um, a lot of the time, you know, going to the plains or going to, um, you know, just different areas. So it's been, it's been very humbling in that respect and very exciting. Earlier, you said that you consider yourself a lifetime student. What was the last thing you feel like you learned? Um, yeah, I would just, I mean, I would tell, I would say like in Menominee, Wisconsin, we were there and, you know, it's a very proud people, very humble people. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, the, the food is an easy sell, right? Ooh, a chef's coming to town and making some food. <laughs> yeah. But at the end of the day, I walked out of there 
I learned about all these different plants. They have like an, uh, like a wild grape there. Um, you know, there was sumac available. There were all these botanicals around some medicinal stuff. It was just fascinating. And like, and you know, I told them, it's like, I appreciate the compliments and the confidence, but like, I learned more this weekend. Like I learned, you know, in two days, I've learned more in the past, like five, 10 years, mm -hmm. you know? Okay. And it's just humbling to be around that. That's my job. Like I, you know, that really sometimes I even still get emotional about it, talking about it because it just, it's so impactful and it's so exciting to do this, but also elevate opportunities, possibilities, um, the evolution of this, you know, contacting with, I have two chefs that I worked with down there that I'm trying to keep on a roster. So when I do contract work in the future, you know, I've got a short list of people that are doing this job. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the exciting part for me, stimulating that conversation and that, and that idea. Um, but definitely, you know, that would be, that would be something that I would say is like super quick on learning. Um, we just got back from Alaska and I had a, a beautiful time in uh, Cordova, Alaska. And I met the, uh, some of the founders of NDN collective, which is the land back initiative. That's a national movement. Um, and then also I met the founders of the native conservancy, which is a nonprofit that's building a for-profit business. And they're doing things based on, you know, so if you're, if you're promoting this farm uh, of seaweed, seaweed farming, it's keeping it, keeping it in Alaska with Alaskans by Alaskans, you know, they're forecasting a $90 billion industry in the next like 10 years. So we're getting in on the, they're getting in on the infancy side yeah, uh, and we're getting in to support them. My job isn't to try and make a living doing this stuff. My job is to lift people like this up and celebrate them and then talk about them and then explore possibilities of partnerships and, and opportunities. So again, like seeing a model that's a working for-profit model where they take it and a percentage goes back to the community they're actually working in. So adding food sustainability and food, a positive spin on food culture to a community on a coastal village in Alaska, um, you know, let's say 50 or 60% goes to market and then the remaining 20 to 30% stay in there to help um, affect climate change in a positive fashion. Mm -hmm. So I just love the fact that we can look at these models as like, Hey, this is not just a corporate America situation where we're trying to pillage everything and make a buck and, you know, and we'll just shake it out later. It's a stewardship model where we're focusing on taking care of people, taking care of standards, um, and then taking care of, you know, the climate. Yeah. And, and I think that's, there's a lot of chaos in the world right now. And that's a, a, a conversation that should be at the top of the list. And I feel like it's, you know, the fourth or fifth down, if not even further. Um, so those are two examples of things that I have gotten a chance to, to do uh, in my job in the last like three or four months. You know, looking back on your past jobs, do you feel like, you know, it was all leading to this advocacy work? Um, <clears throat> without being too like, you know, touchy feely about it. Yeah. But, okay. um, you know, I, I, I just think like, if you care about, you know, if you're a farm to table chef or a movement of something like that, then that, especially in Alaska, your job does become political because I'm indigenous and I focused on some of that. And then the more you learn, the more you just can't turn away from mm -hmm. your job becomes political and a little more mission driven. Um, you know, if this was opportunity for me when I was like 25, there's no way I would do this because I just didn't have the attention span to not 
do something physical in a kitchen. Like I, I'm, I'm a very tactile individual, so I do need, I needed some time to definitely grow those experiences. Um, this job is, I feel like it's a one of one. I mean, the conversations and, you know, it was kind of tailored for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and that's exciting, but I also think I bring a, a unique aspect to the table. I'm not trying to say, I guess I just put it even like right now, if you Google chef, like I wouldn't be the top five millionth response, but if you Google indigenous chef, I'm probably like one of 10. <laughs> um, and I'm not saying that there's not other people doing the work. Maybe that was my social media presence or certain other aspects of the jobs that I did, or simply just being in Alaska. Um, you know, so um, yeah, that's, I think that's enough. Yeah. It sounds like you feel like you found your path. And I wonder, I mean, am I getting that right? I feel exceptionally fortunate to be doing what I'm doing. And I think that it was really exciting for me going back to Alaska this last time. And I had so many people, they're just like, this is what, this is who you are. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's not what I do. Yeah. It's who I am. And, and I identify with that very strongly if I was going to explain myself. Um, and, you know, part of moving to North Carolina was just the macroeconomic situation in Alaska was not working in my favor priorities on development in Alaska. We're not going towards um, localized infrastructure. And I'll just leave it at that. But what I will say is that, um, you know, so so I chose to put myself in a position where if I'm going to be a working class chef, I want to be in a place that's easier to, to, to live. Uh, I have some in-laws in South Carolina, so we were closer to family. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, and then this idea of what I was doing and I was trying to make a living doing in Alaska, I had to put on the back burner as an opportunity and not get it clouded with my day-to-day work that was making a living and feeding my family. Mm-hmm. So for this to be a, a side passion or a side gig that I didn't think was economically feasible to actually make a living doing, I'm, I feel exceptionally fortunate to do this job and to be doing this. And I feel that I'm, while I have a lot to learn, um, I realized that I've also, I've got a certain amount of assets and experiences that, that work in my favor with this as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I always love talking to people about their profession, their career, and you know, they're doing it and then they're doing it for long enough that they're also maybe simultaneously searching for something a little deeper, you know, something that, you know, like yourself really meshes with the person that they are. And then through that perseverance and just staying in that lane, they find it, you know, and and it it is always like so individualized and that person would not have found that thing if, you know, maybe they had given up or stopped moving around or stopped searching, you know? Yeah, no, I th- I think, and again, it's just something that, you know, I was just having a conversation. It was like, if I was waiting for opportunity, I'd still be sitting in a double wide trailer in Alaska somewhere. <laughs> like I've, I've, I feel like I have forged a path and made this work for me and who I am and who I saw myself gr- growing into. Um, and I, again, but I, but it's not like you look on Craigslist and there's 15 jobs for indigenous outreach, <laughs> uh, you know, director. So, um, 
I do feel like kind of one of one. And I feel very fortunate that I, that I found these people. Um, you know, I just saw the woman that I was talking to today and she's actually the grants writer for natives. And I was like, you single-handedly changed my life. Like I have nothing but love and respect for you. Um, and I that's amazing about Dana and Sean. I mean, they had an opportunity to meet me and we just, by the end of the conversation, it kind of turned into a job interview <laughs> and, 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 um, and I, I, you know, my priority is my, my daughter, she's going to school. She loves her life where she's at. I'm not gonna, no matter how, you know, if it was my experience, I'd be on the red eye working at a Womney or IFL or something. Mm-hmm. But, um, my job is to, you know, facilitate a, trying to grow a good human. So yeah. Like, you know, and I feel like we've been doing a pretty good job of that. So, um, I wasn't, you know, it's not in my place to put her somewhere else, especially going into like, you know, junior high and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so I do feel eternally grateful, honestly, for the founder, co-founders, Sean Sherman and Dana Thompson and, uh, you know, the person Kate I was telling you about as well. So yeah, it's, I don't, I don't even know how to express the gratitude enough. I want to go back to you know, your upbringing. So you were born in Petersburg, Alaska, mm-hmm. and then your family moved to Nome when you were in third grade. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Do you remember why your family moved to Nome? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I was born in Petersburg, um, and I'm of Clinkett heritage. So my mother and my grandmother were born in Petersburg. Um, and then past that, there's some family questions about stuff. Uh, and I know that I think Traditionally, it's like Metlakatla is where my family on my mother's side is from. And on my father's grandfather's side, uh, my mom's dad's side of the family, he's from Sitka, Alaska. So that's kind of like time immemorial where the where that family was from. Um, When I say I have family in Nome, Alaska, that's actually the Irish side of my family. So, yeah, we lived in Petersburg, Alaska, um, and then my parents separated and divorced. And my dad moved up to Nome just to be closer to his sister. And we spent a summer up there and then that summer turned into about a half a school year. And um, so I was there for the summer of my third grade and then my fourth grade, uh, like first semester. And then we moved down to Peters uh, Anchorage, I'm sorry. And then that's where I think I went back to Petersburg for my freshman year of high school, but I mostly grew up in Anchorage and graduated from high school up there. When you think back on your childhood, are there any memories where food stands out? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, growing up in Petersburg, um, man, I remember uh, clamming with my uncles. Um, I remember, uh, I remember being on my dad's saner boat and you know watching a halibut come out that was like as big as my dad. And when you're five or six years old, that's really crazy, mm-hmm. you know, to see something yeah. come out of the water that's bigger than your father. <laughs> um, uh, I remember berry picking. Um, I remember not really fishing. I just didn't have the attention span. And I was kind of probably a little young. I, I know I did, but I, I don't remember that so much. But I was actually just in Petersburg uh, for the first time in 25 years. And I got to tell you, like walking on the dock and just like smelling the air and it's just like, dude, it's just like flashback, you know? Mm-hmm. So, and I, the one thing I truly remember is like my great grandparents' house and my my great uncle, like just, you know, there, my great uncle lived right off a street. Um, I can't think of the name of it now, but he had a smokestack or a, a fish house right there. And there was always just fish smoking in there, you know? So again, like those kinds of smells and memories, mm-hmm. um, or just, you know, my, my uncle had a float plane and, you know, I remember going into his, 
at that time he was a bachelor. So he had this house in a garage and going into the garage and there's like 16 venison hanging, you know, Mm -hmm. aging and just kind of, you know, just seeing like that kind of stuff to me was an impact. I actually remember the first time we grew, uh, you know, I remember, I remember rhubarb out of the garden, which is in Alaska's, you just don't even try to grow it. It just shows up. Yeah. Yeah. And then I remember the first time we had a potato, like we grew potatoes and my dad made hash browns and it was like this manual, like tabletop grater. Um, you know, and I just remember like tasting a potato for the first time and then like moving up to Anchorage, I remember, you know, realizing that like that food is expensive. Like if you go to the store and buy sand, we didn't have family just like, you know, we weren't giving stuff away and we weren't getting stuff given to us or bartering basically. And when you take that out of the equation, you realize how much traditional foods are, or how much that lifestyle food is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I remember, you know, for me growing up, it was cooking in restaurants and well, I mean, prepping in restaurants and dishwashing and doing stuff. Um, yeah, I have a lot of food memories. I remember the first time I had fresh asparagus, I was 19 years old. And I remember just like, wow, this tastes way better than that crap out of the can. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, yeah. Lots of, lots of, uh, pathways back to that in my head. Do you remember some of the earlier jobs you had in cooking? Totally. Yeah. Um, again, I mean, I started off as a dishwasher in a Mexican restaurant and that was actually the physical space years later when I opened up my own restaurant, Noble's Diner in Anchorage. It was the physical space that I was a dishwasher. Um, so I mean, you know, when I got to the owner was right there, you know, it was a family owned restaurant pretty much. And Mm -hmm. it was really, you know, it was great. And she was very, she was very good to me. Um, you know, being a high school kid, you want Friday night off or whatever. Yeah. And then, um, I worked at the convention center downtown in Anchorage and uh, a place that's not there anymore under Tony Knowles, his old restaurant, uh, who was a former mayor and governor of Anchorage. Um, yeah, there was a lot of, you know, and I mean, part of it was just like that, you know, pickle barrel deli. I used to deliver sandwiches and make sandwiches. And, and again, that would be like something spring, spring break, winter break or summer break, you know, I just do it all summer and then kind of maybe pick up weekends when I was around. Um, yeah, there was always a little, a little something and it was pretty much everything I ever did was in food industry. How about the first chef you really noticed and admired? Um, as far as that goes, I would have to actually say, um, I graduated from East Anchorage high school uh, go T-Birds. <laughs> and, uh, and then my senior year of high school, I was actually also the, that was a, the, the only regret I really have is that I was such a lackluster student. Um, and I knew I wanted to go into the culinary field, but I was somehow intimidated to go into the culinary arts program at the King Career Center until my last semester of high school. And I really wish I would have done that like my junior year because, um, I, I got to meet at that point, um, uh, a chef instructor, his name was Glenn Denkler. Um, he was a Culinary Institute of America graduate or alumni. And he really, and then the, his counterpart was Clarence Davis. And he was um, a military, uh, a former like military cook and had gotten into baking. And, and they both basically, it was a exit strategy as you get older as a chef, you know, place to not be working in a kitchen 55 hours a week. And I think that was the first time I saw somebody where it was like, that's the kind of like, you just, you know, and nothing against what I saw growing up, but it was also like, 
I knew I just didn't want to be a short order cook in a restaurant. I knew I wanted to be in this industry, but I knew I wanted more. And I didn't even know what that meant until I met them. And truth be told, I, I pre-registered for business courses at UAA mm-hmm. and nothing against the school, but I knew that I was such a subpar student that two more years of school was a terrible idea for me. <laughs> and again, I'm very tactile. Um, and I wanted to do business because I loved photography mm-hmm. and I loved cooking. Um, and I didn't know which one was going to be the path that I was going to take, but I knew that it was going to be something along those lines. And it turned out to be cooking after I worked with those chefs in particular. And one of them was a, again, a CIA grad culinary Institute of America. So he actually helped me fill out an application and sponsor me as an alumni, which is something they had to do at that time. Um, and this was kind of, again, I'll note 1992. So I guess I'm an old man now, but uh, this is <laughs> the internet pre food network pre, you know, that kind of, you know, pre texting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, it was a, it was a very different format then in a very different uh, situation to get into. When you look at those two early chefs, you know, that, that helped influence you on your path, do you feel like, you know, maybe you absorbed any of their characteristics? Um, I was inspired by their characteristics. Okay. Yeah. And I, and I would say that too. I mean, it was kind of funny because, uh, chef Davis, Clarence Davis is like, he's, I don't want to say aloof, but he was not a warm and fuzzy guy. You kind of, you kind of had to slow burn into his life a little bit. And he actually came and visited me or he was go he was in upstate New York when I went to culinary school and we, he, he reached out to me and, and it was just really genuine. And then, you know, but, but I think also the way he worked was very methodical. And, and again, I just appreciated the fact that these guys came in and they were, they had presence, they had passion, they had composure, they had purpose, they had drive. Mm -hmm. And that was very inspiring for me. And so I'd like to think that that helped me in a positive fashion going where I got. And Chef Dankler was a lot more of like the ham, the guy that's, uh, he's the one doing the pre-shift. Like he'll get up and talk for 10 minutes and he's like, anything, Chef Clarence? And he's like, nope. It's like, okay. Um, You know, and I think there's, that's also, I think the other thing is like, as you get into kitchens, it's how you want to rule and not rule. It's how you want to work with people. Um, you know, do you want to be, do you want to work by intimidation and, and, you know, fear, or do you want to do it with, you know, community and composure? And I just think that that was a, a good example of that, of seeing that. And, um, you know, it helped evolve me into that because I think when you first start managing, you do it out of fear, you want a result and you don't want to push back and you're intimidated in how to handle a situation. Mm-hmm. But I think examples like that are better than no offense to Gordon Ramsay, but Gordon Ramsay, you know, Mm -hmm. if I yell at you and demoralize you into doing what I want you to do, like, what is that accomplishing? You know? So I just kind of, uh, I, you know, I, I would say that probably inspired me in a lot, especially again, given the time and reference, like there was no, you know, Bravo network with top chef or no food network with other shows and podcasts and videos and things like that. So this was a very different time, which is, I know that again, makes me sound like an old man on a rocking chair or whatever, but <laughs> what kind of chef do you feel like you are? Um, well, I'm not a chef anymore. <laughs> um, but when you were, yeah, I would say by the end, I, I would like to think that I was fair and I would, 
think that I was firm. I mean, the last job that I worked at, um, I, I, I took over a restaurant as a chef and it was in the middle of the pandemic. And so it's not just, you know, part of it is like, Oh, service. It's like, okay. And service is demoralizing because we're doing $400 in sales a night, whereas we were doing $2,000 in sales a night before I got there. Mm -hmm. So it's, how do you make sure that you keep it positive? How do you make sure it's fun? How do you work with your staff? Because like, for example, I had a, a group of people, um, and they, you know, I, I need to, I need to make sure that I'm taking care of the kitchen, but I also need to make sure that I'm not, that I'm taking care of the people that are there. And a lot of them have second jobs. So how do I, you know, make it work for them so that I'm not making them work six days a week, for example, when they're already working two jobs, um, but also, you know, make sure that they're stimulated and growing or in, enjoying their space. So, you know, sometimes you have to give and take a little bit and sometimes you have to, you know, make it work. And sometimes there's a cultural barrier, whether that be language or just perception and culture. Um, and I just try to be empathetic and sympathetic to that. But I also need to be firm in what my standards are and what the direction is that I get from the, in that case, the owner, um, you know, and that's, yeah. So I'd, I'd like to think I'm good, <laughs> acceptable, <laughs> if not a little better. And I think I'm a competent cook. And I think that some of my focuses are, you know, for example, at that restaurant, it was a very creative endeavor, but that creativity hampers it when your sales are so low. So you have all of a sudden this food product that's sitting there, it's not getting turned over as much as possible. So I had to recalibrate the menu to work, to fit into a food cost form, you know, that was working for the business and for creativity with the people that were there. Um, so there's just ways around all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Something I keep thinking about, and maybe this is just, you know, my, my pop culture knowledge of chefs is that being a, a chef seems very militaristic. You know, you're, you're keeping everybody on task in the back. And a little bit of what I'm hearing from you is getting away from that uh, maybe authoritative, you know, ruling with an iron fist chef. I wonder how you were able to toe the line between those two things. Well, first and foremost, I don't like being talked to like that. I don't like being interacted with like that. Mm -hmm. um, so I would not put myself in a position where I communicate with people like that. And um, a very dear friend of mine that passed away, just recently was one of my first, he's the chef that gave me my first uh, sous chef position. And he was an army ranger and he was just like, he exuded his confidence. He exuded his thing. He was the same thing. He's like, if I need, if I need a plate run, am I going to yell at that guy to, to make sure you get over here and get the plate? Or am I, am I just going to go get the plate and help the guy out? Mm -hmm. What leader am I, if I don't go and help one of the, you know, even though he's a dishwasher, is he so far beneath me that I can't, give him help when he needs it on a Friday night. Um, so I just think that those are the kinds of things. And the other thing he said a long time ago is just like, he's like, you know, when, when a chef loses his cool, when he loses his composure, like, you know, honestly, if you're always like that, you're kind of just an asshole. So <laughs> and if you get down to it, normally, if you look at the situation, what is happening is it's happening out of fear. Mm -hmm. It's happening out of the fact that like, I'm not organized. I don't have my stuff together. I'm going to take it out on you because you're asking me these questions or I'm not prepared for this situation. So I'm just frustrated. 
more of myself, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that really is something to think about. And again, like, I don't know, I'm not trying to make anybody angry, but I, I do believe that that's pretty sound advice. I used it often and I, I, you know, and when I had to raise my voice or get into, get into, you know, situations where I had to stand firm on my standards, I wasn't doing that from an egotistical point of view. I was doing it from a, from that point of view. Like these are the stand, this is the fun, this is what we're doing. And if you have a problem with that, then you have a problem with this place, not with me. But I think that, you know, that was far and few in between, like when something like that happens or is, um, but, you know, and it's not perfect. I'm not trying to say that that's not always the case. Um, life is full of curveballs and life is full of, you know, mm-hmm. especially when you're dealing with like, for example, I mean, I had four people on the line. I had two dishwashers, myself. I had a whole AM crew and I had, you know, four servers on the floor. Like there's going to be hiccups and curveballs and, you know, sideways and events and things like that. But it's like, how do you manage all that the best way you can, you know? Yeah, for sure. You know, I guess I always think of, of a kitchen, you know, like the head chef is he's, he's like the CEO or, or the boss of this little business in the back. And it seems like by acting, you know, outrageous or authoritative, um, you're setting the standards for the culture of the kitchen. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I don't like working, you know, I remember hearing like I took the job, the first job I ever took in New Orleans um, was at a restaurant called Nola. And that was Emeril Lagasse's second restaurant. Um, and at that point, I was reading about him and he was just a chef that had two restaurants. And then by the time I left, he had opened up his third restaurant, the MGM Grand and bought some other places. And he was the BAM guy on Food Network, which didn't even show in Louisiana. I, I didn't really know who he was in that respect. Um, but I did take that job in particular because the, um, the food quality was unparalleled that I saw. The creativity was still, you know, New Orleans food, but it was just a little more contemporary in a lot of ways. And then, you know, I mean, literally I had these conversations like, oh, wow, yeah, that chef at that restaurant, he's great. But, you know, just watch out because the plates come back if you don't like not like, oh, make this again. Look, I'm getting a plate thrown at me because I didn't do my job right. Oh, do I want to deal with that? No. Am yeah. I going to handle that very well? No. What's going to happen when I'm in a sous chef position or a lead position where I'm expediting? Is that how I'm going to conduct myself as a professional? No. <laughs> so it is really, you know, but it's also, again, like you're, you're in charge of the culture you create. And I think that's, you know, can't be, you can't talk about that enough, especially like I think at this time or the past, you know, whatever it's been 10 years, I think that's kind of a lot of a, toxic nature of the kitchens. I mean, you know, just stuff like just, you know, I mean, I, I, I still am guilty of the working through it. You know, it's just like, okay, I've got this or that, and I'm just going to get up and drink some more coffee and make sure I get through this miserable day Mm -hmm. and compromise myself and my health to get this job done. Or, you know, again, like just, oh, it's okay. Just, you know, it was rough, but just go, go to the bar afterwards and drink your six beers on the servers or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's just like, so it's like really just aligning that culture so that we can make sure that we're growing as professionals and this industry is growing the right way too. Um, I think that's all really important. You know, my only frame of reference for, you know, that exact type of work is my friend Clayton's dad owned a catering business called am chef will travel in anchorage Mm. and when we were in high school 
you know, he'd pay us to kind of put the plates together and give it to the servers. And then, um, you know, during the event and then after the event, we would go and wash the dishes. And it was like, I mean, it was some of the hardest work that I've ever done and it lasted all day, but we got like a hundred or $150 for it. And so whenever I watch, you know, um, a show about, you know, being a chef or working in a kitchen, it always brings me back to those memories. And I'm like, that is just unbelievable, long and hard work. It's true. Am chef will travel. Uh, Mark. Um, Linden. Mark Linden. Good guy. Yeah. Really like the guy. Super smart. And by the time he retired and moved, he had a nice little business. Um, but what I loved about him, and this is a great example of that. I mean, he was super composed. He was super chill. He wouldn't send you unprepared to a, a location to take care of something. And he wasn't going to yell at you if something went sideways because he would be responsible for that. Um, yeah, I think that um, he, he was a great example and a great asset to Anchorage when he was there. And I never really got a chance to work with him. We knew each other perfectly. I was very young when I was in the industry and he was kind of doing the am chef will travel stuff. Um, but yeah. And I, I, again, I think expectations of the industry, like, honestly, my, my favorite experiences have been catering um, because from a business point of view, you're buying, you're basically, you know, if you're doing a $10,000 catering, you know, that 20% of your food budget is $2,000. So if I spend $3,000 on food, I know that I put myself into a weird danger zone. And I have to figure that out. Um, normally because I buy whole foods, I'd, probably spend more like $1,600 on food and something like that, which puts you at a 16% food cost instead of a 25 or 30% food cost, like a restaurant. Okay. And then the same thing with labor, you can kind of back out your labor point and kind of, you know, if it's something where you want to suck it up and just do the hard work yourself, you can and save that money, or you can hire out and get people to help out and maybe get home a little bit earlier, but you spread the cash out a little bit better. But again, like, you know, you can say 20, $25 an hour, and pay that and, and kind of have that all built in. So, um, I always thought catering as most of my experiences, that was where I had the best return on investment of time and the best return on investment of energy and the best like work-life balance, even though you can have busy days. The one thing I loved was like, I'll work really hard for three weeks in the month, but if I know I have that one week off, that's great. And after that eighth day of that, of that week, I know that I've got money coming again and things happening and you could enjoy those seven days with yourself or your family or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think um, it, it is, I think there's like all of that is, again, you have to really be focused and organized and composed. And then again, like for me, it's also like, I don't like being treated. I don't like being talked down to. I don't like being yelled at. I certainly don't like things being thrown at me or poked with hot stuff or whatever. <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to treat people like that. Yeah. Um, you know,
Was there a point when you decided that you wanted to change or revolutionize how people viewed Alaska cuisine? Yeah. Uh, you know, I had been working in a few different restaurants in Anchorage. Um, I opened up my own and I think I just, um, I, I don't know. I can say it any way you want to, but really the, what, it, what it really comes down to, however, the perception was, cause I, I don't know, I've just heard stuff or whatever, but like, for me, I always just thought Alaska could do better. And when you look at the statistics, you know, it's like 96% of our food is imported on $2 billion, $2.5 billion annual budget. And, um, and then as like things are happening, like the new Nordic food movement, like the new Nordic cuisine movement, which was like a $2 billion industry. And people are flying up to, you know, Reykjavik, uh, you know, Iceland and, and like all these if I just said that correctly, you know, but they're going to Sweden, Norway, like working, experiencing this new Nordic cuisine. Yeah. And like we had all, we, we have the whole arsenal of possibilities in Alaska. The one deterrent from that is that, you know, these other countries are smaller, so their coasts are closer or their farms are closer or their foraging, you know, it's, it's closer. And like Alaska is very, it's, it's geographically huge, mm -hmm. yeah. but there's still infrastructure that could have been happened to do that. And, um, you know, there was a point where we were honestly, my wife and I were talking about leaving Alaska. And then I just had these cockamamie half-baked plans that were started working. And part of it was like the, um, Alaska native tribal health consortium, um, store outside your door concept. It was not that concept, but part of that was, uh, called traditional foods, contemporary chef. So I actually put that together and talked with some folks and it became, you know, four part series that I was a part of where we were traveling around Alaska, focusing on traditional foods. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, and then like, because again, I was doing catering, it's not necessarily like doing a restaurant brick and mortar six, seven days a week. So you can, you know, swing that different ways. And, and we were doing a lot of work with traditional foods embellished into the, into the concept. And, um, that was a lot of the catalyst for me. And then just when you start doing again, food gets political on those levels. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you start learning about, you know, farmers nervous about making a living or, um, foraging or, you know, traditional foods rights and, and the history behind some of that, it, it, it becomes something you advocate for and something that you realize that like, can be better and should be better. Yeah. And there's dialogue to be had there. So, that was, that was for me, like the last like seven or eight years I was in Alaska, that was when I'd probably say between 2010 and 20, you know, 16, um, maybe a little bit earlier than that. I'm, I did a, a film release. I catered a film release at the National Museum of, Amer of American Indian in Washington, DC. It was called For the Rights of All. Mm -hmm. um, it was a story about the civil rights movement in Alaska that predates the national movement by 20 years. And while there were many catalysts in there, it did focus probably on Elizabeth Paratrovich, who was Clinkett, who was from Petersburg, Alaska. Um, not not related I, that I know of. Um, but, you know, that that along with honestly, I also saw another exhibit. It was called Skating on the Res. And it was a gentleman named Jim Murphy that was an indigenous American that was a skateboarder. And he was not necessarily raised in his culture. But when he, when he started learning about it, he started putting together skate decks with positive native messaging and he'd hit powwows with his friend. And, you know, the idea, he says the sweet spot of 12 to 16, where like they're too young to stay home. So they have to go with their family, but they're not into the powwow. 
So he's catching them before they're at the, you know, doing something maybe that they shouldn't be doing and Mm -hmm. advocating for like, you know, physical work, you know, you're riding a skateboard, you're doing so you're concentrating. Yeah. Yeah. Physical output, you're getting pride and how to conduct yourself as an indigenous person, they, they would do that, you know, the talks like, Hey guys, you can't, you know, you're going to skate a lot better sober than you are on something, Mm -hmm. um, you know, or whatever. And just kind of really pushing positivity through something that's really a culture. And I think that's the one thing for me, like I wasn't raised super traditionally. Um, but I know that I live my values and they're very similar to Alaskan indigenous values or indigenous values. You know, I mean, the service industry is always the first one to step up when there's a food problem or a catastrophe of any type. Um, you know, we're always doing things for community, even though we have the, you know, it's basically moving money around, even if you do a $3 million restaurant. So I just think there's, you know, a lot of, a lot of those, those were probably um, some of the bigger things for me, you know, and doing, seeing the examples like at the NMAI in DC um, was a big catalyst for me because I, again, I looked at it like, you know, traditional culture or indigenous culture isn't, isn't so precious that it needs to be put in a box and stored on a shelf. It's a living, breathing thing. Mm-hmm. And we really need to pay attention to that, you know? And at one point, you know, there wasn't diabetes in our culture and there wasn't obesity in our culture and there wasn't yeah. these things. And, you know, there was food sovereignty and there was security and there was, you know, structure and medicine. And, you know, so I think we need to kind of balance ourselves out a little bit in that respect. On this path of revolutionizing how people viewed Alaskan cuisine, were you thinking about any specific Alaskan meals? No. I mean, what what I really did was I honestly, the difference between probably like what I was doing up there and what Sean and Dana were doing in in Minnesota, um, I think Sean is way more dedicated to that in the sense that, but it's also, I don't want to say it's easier but I will say that, for example, there's corn, squash, there's things that round out a plate of food. Mm-hmm. If you go and dine at Awamni, there's kind of a starch, there's a, you know, a protein, there's botanicals, and then there's, you know, vegetables and fruits. And I think the hard part, like in Alaska, on a traditional level, I was incorporating traditional foods into recipes that I could use. Mm-hmm. Um, a good thing, a, a, a great point of reference, I guess, is also, and the reasoning behind it, for example, like I would make a fried rice. Fried rice isn't all that ex- exciting, right? But if you, you know, I've made it with porcupine. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've made it with shrimp. I've made it with, um, you know, with uh, beach greens. I've made it with different items. But also when you start going out to rural Alaska, you know, I'm not going to show up with a, a nice piece of cheese and truffle oil and extra virgin olive oil. And all, that's not going to service anybody. But if I have a bag of rice, okay, that's shelf stable. It's very affordable. And you have some fish. That's great. You know, even if it's a piece of salmon left over from dinner the night before, you can flake it over fried rice at the end of the, after you make it, Um, you know, and then add whatever botanicals are in there or you have foraged, or if it's dead of winter, you have some frozen vegetables or something, you know? So I think that was the thing is like really... You know, and and part of it is maybe even understanding that, like, I do think of like Mexican indigenous culture where there's dishes, dishes, like composed dishes that are more traditional. And I don't know if we didn't have that in Alaska because of the migratory nature of the food that we were doing there. Um, Or I think about Clinkett culture and Southeastern culture where 
it, I don't want to say it was stagnant, but it was just more permanent. Like, you know, if you go to Totem Park in Alaska, in Sitka, that was the village of, of Sitka. Um, and that was not temporary or seasonal, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but there was also a beautiful amount of food that was, that's when you walk around there and you know, like there's fish in the river and there's seal in the ocean or the, the sound right there. And there's shrimp and there's gulls and berries and seaweed. I mean, there's a whole meal right there, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I, I didn't evolve that far and I don't know what the answer to that would be, but it's something worth looking at because again, I think that the more you realize and the more you um, understand about the systems that were made, put in place to displace indigenous people in this country, food sovereignty is one of them, you know, and taking that away and making us dependent on bags of rice and rancid meat and Crisco was a, was a plan. It wasn't a, a, a byproduct of a situation. So, um, you know, re-identifying some of this would be soothing and helpful, I think. I wonder what you think can be gained on a large scale by sharing indigenous foods. What can be gained? Yeah. Maybe that, that indicates like perspective, you know, or knowledge or education. Absolutely. Um, the first thing I would say is empathy and understanding. And what I mean by that is like, uh, you know, actually one of the things that put Sean on my radar again recently, uh, about a year ago, he was on the Dave Chang Show podcast and he was just opening up a Womney and they were just talking, but he had mentioned the United States or the indigenous people's history of the United States of America. And um, I was not an academic student. Let me get that, say that right now. But I will say that even going through the motions, like as I was talking to a friend of mine whose uh, child just graduated from high school, that's Alaska Native. Alaska Native history is a three-week course in elementary school. And I think that is absolutely criminal, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. Um, How are we supposed to understand what people are going through if we don't know the history? And I feel like the same way with slavery, we're, 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 uh, you know, we're, we're, we're changing the narrative of what's going on. We're changing the narrative of, of the fact that like, I was actually one of the things in black mountain that I was very proud of um, was there was a thing about the railroad history there and they have a placard and it was just like, you know, the railroad was built by convicts and most of them were African-American and most of them, you know, it was simply the fact they were in, in lockup and you could charge 30 cents a day to have a convict help build a railroad. Whereas like the going rate would have been a, a dollar a day, for somebody else. And that wasn't including the fact that you probably would have had to house them and stuff like that too. So again, when you back out some of the lopsided history, um, and then you choose to cherry coat or gloss over substantial pieces, you don't know that, you know, in World War II, veterans came out and, you know, my grandfather was a veteran of World War II and he represented the territory of Alaska. So technically as an enlisted man in the military, it was in poor form for him to walk around and consort with natives in Alaska, which means basically if he was in his dress, military dress, he was in poor form to walk down the street with your mother or your sister or your wife. That's absolutely atrocious and despicable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we're not talking about that. And that is something that should be brought up. And the fact that, again, like when you start learning about the history of the Aleutians, of the Aleuts that were brought 
into, you know, Southeast, put in, in, you know, basically rotted out old cabins while prisoners of war in Alaska were getting three meals a day in warm cabins. Yeah. You know, it's just like, what, what is this? Like, and, and then you wonder why there's trauma in this history and these things that nobody talks about. And it's like, well, why can't you just pull yourself up from your own bootstraps? We didn't even have shoes, man. Yeah. Like, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I'm, again, I'm not an academic. I'm not well-versed in this. I don't have years of knowledge. These are things that I've read and seen and processed over the past few years or maybe even year. But as you learn more and more, I am understanding more and more of the, um, I want to say outrage. I'm not outraged, but I look at this and I realize that there's a necessity for understanding of this mm-hmm. and shouldn't be denied anymore. And it shouldn't be, uh, glossed over or, or, or cherry coded or cherry. You know what I mean? Like, it's just yeah. something it needs to be addressed. Um, a great example, the trail of tears, mm-hmm. you know, who was a fan of the trail of tears, Adolf Hitler. What happened in after World War II? There was like a billion dollar compensation and all this work to be taken, you know, for the damage that was done in 1946. What are we dealing with in the United States of America from that turmoil? Nothing. In 2016, 2018, I was watching Southern statues being torn down, you know, in protest and finally in right, Jackson Square being, you know, being removed in New Orleans. And it's like, but but we're not talking about the real situation. We're not talking about the real harm that was done. And I find that terrible mm-hmm. needing for change. And I'm certainly not saying that everybody that was indigenous needs $50,000 in reparations. What I'm saying is that we need to find a way to say, hey, you know, this happened. Um, a great example for me that I think about is that um, in the Hawaiian state constitution, any work on traditional lands or cultural lands needs a cultural representative present and a, in a cultural committee to to determine that, um, you know, the, the process is being talked about. Well, why can't we take that and make that an addendum for the rest of the, the country, the other 49 states in the country? That to me is a form of reparation. That to me is a form of policy and change. That's the form of progress and empathy and sympathy for what happened and righting some of the wrongs. And I think that's, again, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I'm just looking at that like I could get behind that. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned the indigenous people's history of the United States, and I actually read that just a couple months ago, and excellent book. I, you know, out of my own ignorance, I I guess I didn't recognize how much indigenous racism is just part of everyday life. You know, after I read that book, I was seeing it everywhere, you know, Um, from sayings people just say and and probably honestly just don't know what they're saying. Yeah, it's it's embedded into the culture. Ooh, you're off reservation, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's a big one that I've recognized. And I'm like, wait, that's actually really racist. Yeah. Demoralizing. It was another fascinating read that I just did. Um, I was just looking at it here. It's called We Had a Little Real Estate Problem, and it was written by Cliff Nesteroff. And uh, so the comedian, um, you know, it was a story. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe I'm just doing this right now. Charlie Hill. He is Oneida. He's Oneida. And so his, his um, and actually, when you start reading this book, 
the interesting part is like it's about comedy. It's about Indigenous Americans, but it's also about the story, the narrative. So, um, for example, Charlie Hill was, you know, that was one of his jokes is like, hey, I'm a, you know, I'm Charlie Hill. I'm from Oneida Nation. Um, you know, we, I'm from Wisconsin. We used to be from New York, but we had a small real estate problem. Mm-hmm. And so he also was the one like when you see it was like embedded into the culture about like the Caucasians. Um, why, well, you know, why is there a, a baseball, you know, baseball team called the Braves and why can't there be one called the Caucasians? And he really called out a lot of the stuff in like this seventies, um, and eighties. And he was a contemporary with like Dave Letterman and Jay Leno. And yet, you know, he, and the book is very interesting because it really, he was very, um, consistent in his narrative of bringing up change with humor and, and, you know, and, and bringing up the advocating for the, even the acceptance of it. But the more fascinating part about the book is that it goes back to, it talks about the trail of tears and uh, Roy Rogers, I believe great grandparent was basically like, you're going to leave your land. You can do it nicely and get, you know, 10,000 acres over there and some money or you can do it the other way, but you're going to be leaving. So he chose to take the money and the land and then became a pariah in his own community after that. Um, and then because of the Dawes Act, he was uh, he lost most of his land because they they regulated how much land was taken. So I think he had six or 10,000 acres and he ended up with like a hundred and uh, I don't know, like whatever it was, like the Dawes Act, it pulled it into, he was a rancher and he lost his ranch basically because he had no land to, to roam his, his, uh, cattle and stuff. Mm-hmm. But from that, it goes into the conversation about how Roy Rogers learned how to rope and, and, uh, you know, basically do this stuff that was like, you know, basically turned into a sideshow in a lot of ways. Um, but, and, and he had the charisma to, you know, work a crowd. And so as he evolved, because honestly, all I ever knew about Roy Rogers was that he was a cowboy and he died in Utagavik, Alaska. And when you find out that most of his career, he was a very proud Cherokee man that advocated um, for the Cherokee people and the, mistre- and the mistreatment of indigenous Americans for the better part of his career before talking movies came into play, you know, that was how he actually made a living. Um, and then from that, it starts going into the history of, um, you know, vaudeville, for example, where it's like, oh, well, come and look at the former savages that have all been, you know, cleaned up with a European lens or something like, or, you know, the wild West shows where basically all these people had been demoralized and pushed onto reservations. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, well, you can come off, but you have to, you know, be under this subpar condition and travel the world with us for pennies on the dollar to, you know, for compensation, or you can go to jail. And then it went into talking movies and narratives of cowboys and Indians and how, you know, just it's, it's a really fascinating book. But then you start looking at it and you realize like, oh, that's why indigenous people are stoic or, you know, uh, violent or dangerous. You know, it's because of all this narrative that was created like hundreds of years ago now. You know, this yeah. isn't just a, a blip in the screen, um, you know, so it's, it's really fascinating again when you start looking at the culture and then it becomes undeniable when you see, you know, the the wooden Indian standing outside the trading post store, yeah. or whatever it is. You know, you can really you just start seeing it, yeah. and and, um, and I think that's really necessary for. I mean, again, we're not um, we're a nation of immigrants. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody here is from somewhere else, and 
you know, some have a bigger variant or a more noticeable variant. Um, but at the end of the day, we all started from the same place. So I just think that's, well, except for indigenous people, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just like, I, again, like, you know, finding these, finding these, um, these books and finding this information has been, you know, I try to look at it and I'm not going to say I don't get irritated or mad, but I also look at like, what's an actionable item I can do in this, with the platform I have and how can I, how can I bring the light to that? Mm -hmm. Have you always been a student of history or was there a book or a documentary maybe that, that got you into it? I don't know the answer to that. Um, student of history. No. Um, but I'm just kind of a scatterbrain knucklehead that finds things that he likes. And when I like food, I start doing deeper dives into food and then about traditional parts of food, whether that be, you know, Creole food in the South or Italian food or um, whole animal butchery or, you know, this. So when it became indigenous foods and then it kind of grew into that interest. Um, and I was not raised growing up. I, my emphasis was probably on, making money. So I wasn't depending on somebody else, quite frankly, um, versus scholarly activities. Um, yeah, that's what I'd say. So all of this is sort of more builds into the narrative of who I am and who I've kind of evolved into versus maybe what I was taught or what I didn't, you know, I didn't go to proper college and learn four years of, you know, indigenous studies or something like that. When you were a kid growing up in Alaska, did you ever think about what kind of adult you'd be, you know, what kind of work you'd be doing and what your home life would look like? Um, I just knew, no, I mean, I, I could not tell you why I don't, I didn't grow up in the industry. I don't know anybody personally. I knew I was always going to be in the culinary industry. I know I always knew I was going to be a chef. I, I could not tell you why that is. Um, and then as far as like who I am, no, I'd say I had, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. One of the reasons I asked that question is because, you know, as I'm writing these questions down the other day, I'm looking at the fact that, you know, you got the opportunity to cook for president Barack Obama. And you also got another opportunity uh, to cook with Al Roker. And you'll probably have to help me out here, but the French chef and the Italian-American chef that you also got to cook with. Jacques Papin and Lydia Bastianis, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Those two. And, and I'm thinking, you know, when you're a kid, at least for me, you know, you're, you're thinking about like, what cool thing can I do in the future or what, what would I like to do in the future? And it would seem to me that from the moment, maybe you decided to be a chef or you got interested in food, there might've been a point where you're like, it would be really cool to, you know, cook around some famous people, you know? No, that, that was an opportunity. And I think that's, again, like, to me, those opportunities, I, I never, you know, the one thing, again, like a, a very dear friend of mine, um, you know, I, I had the luxury of being a 20 year old idiot when I got out of culinary school. And I was also very uh, fortunate to 
probably be the youngest person on the line by four years. Like, so I just never had a chance to just be the idiot doing whatever, you know? Well, I was still an idiot. Don't get me wrong. But, um, (laughs) I had the luxury of being around my, my friends were 26, 28, you know, like okay, they had had real life experiences. And one of my dear, very dear friends to this day, uh, Montoya, he, he, I remember him saying, he's like, you know, we're, we're doing this. And he had, he had gone to the, uh, culinary California culinary Academy, worked with like Wolfgang Puck and done this stuff. And he was out in uh, New Mexico. And he's like, man, he goes, I don't, I don't clock in to clock out to do what I love to do. And I'm not here to be, you know, Emerald Junior or whatever. It's like, but when these opportunities arise, if you're if you're true and steady with who you are, opportunities need to come to you, and then you embrace them. Mm-hmm. And that's what I believe. I'm not out there pounding pavement trying to cook for you know Barack Obama or anybody. And like I said, if I was in North Carolina, I probably wouldn't even be the top 300th chef that would have been considered for that. So part of it is being you know a, a big fish in a small pond in Alaska at the right time. And part of it is the fact that I'm going to be doing my job and doing what I do, um, whether or not somebody famous walks through the door, whether I get noticed in a certain way or not, I was going to be doing what I was doing anyways. And I don't think that living in the reverse way of that is a very smart idea, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. What did you cook for Obama? Um, a lot of traditional foods. And then, um, if it wasn't traditional, it was like a market market meal. So, uh, geez, that was a couple of years ago now, but, um, yeah, we, we cooked, um, I remember like razor clams, uh, there was a, a moose sausage that the host had had us prepare for them. Um, you know, there was stuff like grab locks and things to kind of put together with that. And then, you know, there was a salad again from market vegetables, and then that went into kind of a surf and turf meal with, uh, I want to say venison and salmon, local vegetables. And then that went into a, like a cobbler dessert. Um, I think the biggest point of pride was just like, you know, the secret service. I don't even know how many of them there were, but you know, he's like, Hey, I'm just letting you know right now he's coming from East coast time zone. So where he's coming from, it's like 11 o'clock at night or, you know, midnight or whatever offended if he doesn't eat anything or if he just picks on the plate or something. I was like, okay. And he ate every course. He had, you know, everything was appreciated and acknowledged. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. We talked a little bit about this with the authoritative chefs in the kitchen, but in popular culture, we, we see these chefs as gritty, loud savants you know, all for the sake of efficiency, craft, and good food. What do you think popular culture gets right about being a chef? And what do you think it gets wrong about being a chef? I think the sensationalism of the grandiosity of stuff like that is kind of crazy. Um, I think that corrective measures have been happening now, for example, like, again, like, you know, and I was very guilty of it when I was in my twenties in New Orleans, for example, you know, like, yeah, I just got done working, you know, 55 hours a week as a line cook for seven bucks an hour. And, um, well, you just learn a lot about yourself, you know, all of a sudden it's like, you know, you go out for a drink after work and then next thing you know, it's eight in the morning and you're riding your bike home. (laughs) (laughs) Part of that's being in New Orleans. Um, and part of that's being, you know, a 20 year old knucklehead. So, um, 
But as you get older, the one actually the biggest deterrent for me, like leaving or the biggest reason that I knew I needed to kind of leave New Orleans was you either grow up or you or you fade out. And what I mean by that is like, you know, you can be 22 or 20 and do that kind of stuff. But, you know, when you're 30 and you're getting picked up at the bar before your shift at work, it's like, come on, man. You know, like mm-hmm. um, so. But I, I think that as a whole, like society is really looking at a lot of corrective measures and ideas behind that and, and the, the vibe behind the doing of that. Like, why why do you feel compelled to be in this position or do these things, you know, pre post or whatever, you know, with work? Um, but I, I think that, you know, I think there's probably truths on every level, but some of it is sensationalized is what I'd say. Um, I just watched like the FX, uh, restaurant chef driven, I don't know, drama comedy or whatever it was, but it was called the bear. And there were some things on there that they really got, I thought spot on, but there was also like some stuff that was kind of funny. Like we were talking about it and you know and it's like this one guy is like painstakingly talking about this piece of beef like this one piece of beef it's like dude if you open a restaurant and you're cooking one piece of beef like you'd be out of business in a week you know like <laughs> it's just like these things like that where it's like you don't sit there and put the minutia on something like that the preciousness of how you're doing like this one little thing you know mm-hmm. and you know but I, I thought there were some sensationalistic aspects of it none of it was 100 wrong is what i'll say um other than canning money and tomatoes. Um, but, uh, yeah, I just think, but, you know, but I mean, there are layers of truth and all of that, but I I just think some of it's sensationalized for TV and some of it is, you know, brought to light. I mean, it was just, it sounds so stupid, but even like that cartoon Ratatouille Mm -hmm. reading about that. And like, you know, if you watch it, like the, the cooks have, even on a cartoon, they have burn marks on their forearms and that's like a real thing, you know? Or the fact that like, you know, in a kitchen, like in the bear and they're drinking out of deli cups and using Sharpies, like that sounds so insignificant, but that's such the vibe of a kitchen, you know? Yeah. Um, So I don't know. I just thought there were nuances that were great. And I thought there were things that were sensationalized, like that guy, cousin or whatever, like, you know, that guy would, yeah, that happens, but it doesn't happen every day. You know what I mean? So that's the kind of stuff for me that I think like just creates drama or creates a maybe uh maybe that could be looked at in a better light and is that because that character cousin he's just a live wire yeah and there's definitely live wires in restaurants but again like you can't conduct yourself like that every single day you know they they just there would have to be an end to that or a or a resolution um but it's just you know it's just sensationalistic i mean and that's fine i watched it <laughs> <laughs> so i guess they got their goal <laughs> Do you mind if I ask you a few questions about your sobriety? No, not at all. So the other day you mentioned that you've been alcohol-free for two and a half years, which congratulations, by the way. I personally grew up with a number of alcoholics in my family, so I know that struggle and I know what that path looks like. You said that drinking is a ritualistic thing. And that sobriety, in a lot of ways, comes down to normalizing the idea of it. What does normalizing sobriety look like to you? And do you think you're getting closer to it? Or have you have you reached it? I guess, first of all, I need to make a statement that like, um, I also grew up with alcoholism around me. Mm-hmm. And so I saw it firsthand. And while... 
I did see that. I don't believe that I fit in that profile. Um, but whether it be the industry I'm in, the times we live in, whatever it is, like there was an aspect of drinking that was acceptable by society standards that I was indulging in, but it was not working for me anymore. Um, I've always been a probably a high, if you were saying like drink in moderation, um, I was above that, but I wasn't losing my job. I never got a DUI. I never had marital issues. Um, you know, that kind of extreme example of where you're like this, something's got to change, you know, mm -hmm. um, that said, I'm, I got into my early forties and I, you know, hypertension and pre-diabetes and, and so there was a health aspect evolved in that. Um, and that was probably the biggest catalyst for that. Um, and when I did choose, I, I, I went alcohol free three different times. The first time was probably for six months. I had a very dear friend of mine pass away. Um, and I knew that if I drank to console that pain, it would not be good. Mm -hmm. And it took about six months to reconcile that. And then my experience was like, well, you know, maybe I'll just have a glass of wine on Friday. And, you know, and then literally within the week, I was drinking just like I had never stopped. Mm. And so I thought about that. And then the second time I just kind of chose to stop about probably a year later for, I just chose to stop. And I, every time that I ever did it, I never did it. Um, I never like sat my wife down and said, I'm doing this and this is how it's going to be. And we can't have anything in the house. You know, I didn't do it. I did it for me, you know, and I guess, I guess I did it in the way that when you're on an airplane and the oxygen masks falls, you take care of yourself first and then your child. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, so I was just doing it because I wanted to be a little better. And I knew that I couldn't monitor my drinking, like I said, to a Friday or Saturday night or something without it spilling into the rest of my life. And it was affecting my life more for whatever, because of age or because of whatever, it just was affecting it more. And, um, so the last time I stopped, um, I had a good excuse of having like, for example, my, my sister and her family came to visit for the holidays. It's like, well, I don't want to make them feel awkward and not drink around them and do, you know, and I just kind of had this goal, like December 31st, I'll, I, January 1st, I'm going to be sober. I'm going to choose to live alcohol free. And that's also why I choose to say, I choose to live alcohol free versus sobriety. Sobriety puts a, 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 a call to action. Oh, I'm sober. Ooh. Oh, is it okay if I drink a beer in front of you? You can have it. You can, I closed down a dive bar in Anchorage two weeks ago drinking <laughs> soda water. That's yeah. fine. I'm down, do it, do it up, do what you got to do. But I'm just, it's just not for me anymore. And, um, yeah. So, you know, when I did that, I kind of just January 1st, I, with my family there and, you know, they're drinking wine. They, you want some wine? I'm like, you know what? I'm good tonight. And I didn't know that it was going to be two and a half years or whatever. Um, you know, I thought maybe I'll try a dry January or maybe I'll go, you know, to my birthday in June or whatever. And I did know that I was kind of done with it though. And, um, you know, I think part of it is like when you learn about health, it's kind of the same. You learn about health in like elementary school. So it's like eat nuts, eat, you know, have a sandwich every day with protein and dairy and, um, you know, and then make sure like, oh yeah, make sure you have an acai smoothie with, with, you know, cashews and kale and honey and, 
you know, and then when you break it down and you're like, cashews turn into carbohydrates and honey is sugar and mm-hmm. fruit turns into, you know, more sugar. So you're inundating your body with just with sweet. And when you're 14 or 16 or whatever, or even a young adult, that's fine. But when you're in your forties, it's not. Mm-hmm. So I was just inadvertently also harming myself on a dietary level where I thought I was being healthy. Yeah. Um, but all of that kind of came to clarity, like when I started being alcohol free and, you know, I mean, great examples are just like stopping. Like I used to go home, you know, drink, stay up too late. Uh, my wife would get up and get our daughter ready for school. And then I would take her to school and then I would come home and I'd sleep from like, you know, seven to 10 and I don't do that anymore. So I literally have three more hours of my day in my life. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and it's like, what, what is worth taking three hours of my day away? Like not a lot yeah. and not a glass of wine, not a beer. Um, so I'm very thankful and, and, and feel gracious that I have a, an immense amount of gratitude that I, that that genetic quandary didn't land on me, uh, because I have seen it intimately in my family. Um, I have friends and family that, you know, have been sober for a decade that still go to, you know, AA like three, five times a week, you know, it's a lifestyle choice and dedication. Um, and then really probably the biggest thing that helped me was when I say normalizing sobriety, I started listening to some podcasts because that's just what I do or now or whatever. Um, and I wasn't looking up AA podcasts or alcohol free podcasts. But I was listening to, I mean, um, some of the junk I listened to, uh, Mark Marin, for example, WTF. Mm-hmm. Um, he is a, you know, he 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 states very clearly that he's been sober for I think twenty eight years. Um, uh, Rob Lowe, it's called literally, and he's been sober for all, like thirty three or something like that. And there's one that I listened to. It's called Smartless, and it's got Will Arnett, Jason Bateman, and Sean Hayes on it. And like Sean Hayes is the only one that does drink alcohol. So the other two will have stories and sometimes their stories are just like, well, back before I lost my privileges, you know, <laughs> yeah. at a bar, closing down a bar on a mountain of cocaine with this. And it's just like, <laughs> but I think like normalizing the fact that these are people that get up and go to work and choose to get through their day um, is very empowering. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mark Marin, uh, one that I listened to also, his name is Dax Shepard and he's got the armchair expert. And he, you know, he, he did a lot of talk very openly about stuff like, you know, he's like, I just needed to make sure that because of the way I lived, I was always trying to be at 11 and, you know, and then you get down to zero and it's like, you're, so your emotions are either super high or super depressed. And then when they're depressed, you got to get high to get going again. And he goes, so I had to come to terms with the fact that I need to live my life at a six or a seven. And, and that's that's going to enable me to have a spouse and have a career and have, you know, and it's, and it's just kind of whatever it takes to make you look at something and realize like, it's all work, you know, and it's all this. And like, you know, do you deserve the beer? Maybe, but do you deserve, do you deserve six of them? <laughs> like if you choose to. Um, but, you know, for me, the lot of it was just seeing on these things. And if you start again, if you look at the narrative, it's like, you know, you deserve this beer and you deserve this and like go out and, you know, get the lady and get the handsome man or the whatever, you know, mm-hmm. there's all this work that's getting put towards like basically why you have to be out socializing and drinking um, or all this, you know, advertisement and stuff. So I just really am grateful that I found those avenues 
that maybe perceive that, you know, aware of the fact that there's an alternative where I can just choose to be alcohol free. And I, I know I told you this before, but like, again, a sticking point for me was that I went to a family member's house when I was living in Alaska for work. And he lived in Fairbanks. Well, I'm not going to show up at my family member's house with a six pack of beer because I deserve it. He'd been sober for six or eight years at that point. So that would be completely disrespectful. Um, but I'd go home and he's like, Hey man, you want, you want a cup of tea? It's like, Oh yeah, sure. I love a cup of tea. Yeah. And him and his girlfriend had two cups of tea and then they went to bed and that was their end of the night ritual. Just like, you know, my ritual was to drink three or five beers before bed. So it's just that perception of how you take on that information and then how you digest it, I guess, and where your priorities are. Have you discovered any new drinks you know, non-alcoholic drinks? Um, you know, that's really funny. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, my kind of go-to is just a Topo Chico and I do mm -hmm. like half, um, peach juice in it. <laughs> um, you know, but I'll also do, um, you know, so I have, I do have some bitters and stuff like that. Some like, um, some artisan bitters it sounds so bougie. Um, <laughs> you know, so it's like a smoke bitter and a, this bitter and a, you know, peach habanero bitter. Um, so I'll, I'll fiddle around with stuff like that, but honestly, um, and it's really funny to think about it, but like all those hop waters and hop teas, mm -hmm. um, I, I genuinely just enjoyed drinking beer and I don't miss it. And when I have those drinks, the flavor is so close to beer for me that I just, I get uncomfortable with that. Like I don't miss drinking it. So I try to actually stay away from all of that stuff. I know that helps people out a lot. I have a friend that's also alcohol free and she will drink those. Uh, oh, I can't think of the name of them now, but it's like a hop. It's a hop. It's a hop water of some sort. Um, and they are fine if you're into it. Um, but it's just, you know, just kind of what it is. Yeah. You know, what's really ironic is I love seltzer water. And right now I'm drinking a Topo Chico. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, it's again, like, I just, I don't know. I think I, I really like those two. And I think it's the, the bubbles in them are just a little finer than like a seltzer out of a can or something. Um, there's a little, there's a little something in there that I think is, is good, um, is, you know, those nuances, but you know, I live in the South. So pretty much anywhere I go now, it's like, if I say an Arnold Palmer, they know what it is. And it's just like half iced tea and half lemonade. Um, that's kind of one of my go-tos if I go out to drink or go out to eat or something like that. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's, you know, normalizing it, I think is a big deal. And that's why I also, I put some stuff out sometimes or talk about it. And I have a couple of friends that I reached out to because the other part that happens is you're, you, you, you drink or consume alcohol and it helps, um, curb, maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's, you know, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And what I have found is when you take that crutch away, your personality falls into a little bit of an unbalance. Mm -hmm. And so I went through a time where I'm like, you know, I have a very jovial relationship with my daughter. We joke each other. We make fun of each other. You know, we do, we, we, we have a very, I think a very warm relationship. And I found myself getting like irate at her if she, she, she pushed something a little too far. And it was something that like, you know, two weeks before it wasn't too far. And I find myself like, you know, like what's going on with me, you know? And so I was calling a couple of confidants that I had that really helped me kind of walk through it and realize like, dude, just, just apologize 
understand, explain where you're at and, and make sure that it's just something you are acknowledging. And it's going to take a couple of weeks. Like, you know, my friends, like it took me like six weeks to kind of figure that out. Cause he had still, he had three children and he found himself in that position too. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and then like, I just kind of went over this bout where I was like freaking out over sugar. I could not get enough. And it's, I've been sober for, you know, alcohol free for two and a half years. And I just went through like the six month bout of just like, okay, hopefully today I won't raid my kids candy corner in the cabinets like yeah you know so it's just kind of crazy where these things still ebb and flow and it's really just doing a daily check-in with yourself and understanding what's going on yeah it seems like once the alcohol is cut out there are a lot of people that need to um you know have that period of time to understand like who they are like who am i without this crutch yeah and 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 again you kind of start also realizing like you know what it what it does for you like again does it help you in a confrontational situation does it help you you know and so i found myself like it's really amazing because i i know i'm stubborn and but i also know that i can apologize to my wife and daughter or i can you know hey i'm sorry i was out of line that wasn't appropriate. That wasn't nice. And I need to, mm-hmm. and I understand that. And I'm sorry, you know, and also at work, like I don't always have to be right, but I have to be understanding as to why I'm trying to do what I'm doing and create that, you know, it's again in the work culture, especially in the culinary culture, it's like, this is the standard. This is the way we do it. You know, my way or the highway, get out if you don't want to do it. And I can be more reasonable. Now I find myself being more reasonable with those, you know, with those conversations. Um, and I like that. I'm proud of myself about that. You know, mm-hmm. I don't want to walk around. I don't want people like ugh, dealing with this guy again, you know? Yeah. Um, so it's just interesting. It's, it's, a it's again, I guess you're just always learning. <laughs> well, Rob, that does it for my questions. You know, I, I wanted to say that, like I said earlier, you know, I grew up around a lot of alcoholics and, I know how, how tough that path is, you know, it, it, that AA language, you know, I was lucky to grow up with it and to be able to recognize those slippery slopes. And I guess I just want to say congratulations, you know, stay on the path and I know how much better it can get. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, I, I go through, you know, I mean, like I literally have three more hours in my day. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. you know and and again you also become more familiar with yourself you know like um you know because i used to get up and i used to drink way too much coffee to get my miserable you know butt to work and then i used to drink way too much alcohol to calm down after my misery had ended for, ended for the day and now i wake up and i'm like you know i was just medically speaking like you know i go to a chiropractor from time to time and i go to him like once a year now instead of like every month, you know, because I'm not inflaming my body or doing this kind of damage. Mm-hmm. So it's just, I see all these things that are so positive that it makes no sense. Like I wouldn't give up this. I wouldn't give up the relationship I have with my family for this. I wouldn't, you know, I'm actually supposed to be going to, I don't think it's going to be work out, but work out, but they were, you know, I was going to go to Italy for work. And a part of me is like, damn, do I do it? Do I, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I, I love wine. I can, I can swish and spit wine confidently. I'm not worried about that. But it's like, well, maybe just this. And it's like, you know what? It's not, it's not worth that. It's not worth me 
it's not worth that experience. It's not even worth the fact that I'm going to be feeling, you know, crappy the next day. And then I have to also look at it and say like, you know, I, I don't build this pillar of who I am based on sobriety, but I am really proud of who I am because I'm alcohol free. And, you know, and again, I'm kind of walking what I talk and I'm, I'm really proud of that too. So when you meet me and you realize through this story or maybe that, or maybe you have your own baggage and I can assist with that, but I'm, you know, I'm very clearly who I am and I'm, I'm very proud of that. And I'm proud of what it, what being alcohol free has done for me. You know, it's, it's bettered my life. Um, and so I appreciate that. And again, I don't identify with, you know, having to go to AA two times a day for the past 10 years to make this work for me, you know, so I'm, I'm not necessarily in that camp, which I'm eternally grateful for, but it's also almost, I don't want to say it's worse. It can't be, it, it, but it is weird to be in a justifying situation where it's like, I don't identify with that. I don't need to get a sponsor and do this and change my life and, you know, make these proclamations. But I also feel like, you know, like I said, I mean, I did this on a very, like my wife found out that I stopped drinking because in February she's like, I was wondering why the wine was always going bad because like, basically if there was an open bottle of wine, I would finish it. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And so again, like I didn't do it to save our relationship. I didn't do it. You know, I, I did, but I did it for me first. And, um, by doing that, I'm exuding a better example to my daughter. I'm exuding a better, you know, being a better spouse. I'm exuding being a better family member and friend and hopefully professional, you know, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, it's, thank you for that. I appreciate it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I again, I guess I should along those lines of normalizing it. I'm glad we're talking about it, but I also don't want to make it uncomfortable for people you know, I do still go out to dinner and I, I can, you know, the virtue now is that I really know how to kind of conduct myself in a confident way. Whereas like, you know, when I first started doing this, if there was the pandemic wasn't around, I don't know that I could have said no to a glass of wine if somebody had already poured it for me. Whereas now I can, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those are just those things that come, come through, come through life and lessons and stuff like that. But I think normalizing being alcohol free is, is a really good thing. And you see ebbs and flows of it in the, you know, right now, like a big push, there's actually talk about like NA bars or like, you know, there's this really swanky uh, place in Durham and they have a a zero, they have a ZBV, zero alcohol beverage, and then like a LBV, like low alcohol beverage selection as well, you know? So it's just, it's normalizing that. Whereas like, you know, 10 years ago, it was like, how much, you know, can we get like a triple threat IPA? So I'm blasted after one beer Yeah. before like, no, I want to have a low alcohol beverage and remember my night, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I don't know, it'll just be interesting to see the way things work, but I found what works for me. And, you know, hopefully if somebody needs help or assistance, then I have, you know, kind of a model for that, that will work for them. That's awesome. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? I'm I'm really excited to have uh, done this talk with you. And, we, you know, we met through the work I was doing in Alaska. And I was just really proud to go back to Alaska. Um, and I'm really proud to bring this work that we're doing, you know, to so many synchro- synchronistic, like, opportunities in Alaska at the moment. Like, there's so much work going in this direction. It's really exciting. And there's never going to be a drought of work for me. 
again on this path. <laughs> so, but it's exciting to see it come to fruition and it's exciting to be doing this. And, uh, I also appreciate you for your time too. Thank you. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker. Chattermark's music is produced by Keys Open Doors. <laughs>